Hello and welcome to the Total Quidditch podcast, a place where we talk to the people who make Quidditch what it is and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. We're now on to episode 10 of the podcast and it's certainly great to have reached such a number so quickly and to have had so much, so much engagement with the show from our listeners. So thanks to everyone for their support and this new adventure for the Total Quidditch platform. For this one, we're traveling all the way down uh, to Australia, the land down under, for our first Australian guest, and probably one of our tallest guests we've had on the show. Uh, this chase has been a staple of Australian Quidditch for a long time, both in Victoria and on the national team, the Drop Bears, who of course shocked the world in 2016, that now historic win over the USA to win the World Cup. Tara Orson, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Fraser? I'm very good. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thank you. Fantastic. I should say, um, it's quite a strange circumstance we have here. Uh, with the time difference, like 11 hours time difference. So it's late night here in the UK and mid-morning down in Australia. So great to find a time where we can make this work. Yeah, I should have said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess kind of the first question to start with. Um, Obviously, how are you and like, what, what's it like in Australia at the moment with the whole pandemic situation? I guess, how normal is life? Um, I think we're definitely one of the countries that's doing a lot better at the moment, which I'm really thankful for. Last year was really difficult. We had uh, maybe four months in Victoria where we had a string of being in pretty strict lockdown. Um, at the worst of it, we could only be outside for an hour. You couldn't go more than five kilometres from your home. Uh, you could only leave the house for work, grocery shopping, the hour of exercise and if you were really sick. Um, and most of the workplaces had shut down. Uh, but I think those four months have led us to be in a pretty good place now. So you have to wear masks indoors at shopping centres, um, on public transport. But for the most part, it does feel pretty normal. Like, a lot of people are still keeping their distance from each other, which is encouraged, and that now just feels normal. So if someone gets too close, you sort of like, what are you doing? Get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how normal it feels now. Um, I, I Like, concerts aren't really back yet, but they are in some capacity, and we had our football season start last night, and people went, but the tickets were limited. So, yeah, we're getting there, but it's not, it's not 100% yet. Okay, that's yeah, definitely uh, something I've been curious about. I've seen a few people on uh, social media out in Australia, sort of having parties and like socialising and things like that. And we're still kind of queuing up to get into a supermarket back here. And yeah, hopefully in a few months' time, that might be uh, yeah, we, we might have kind of an Australian normal <laughs> by then. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Okay. Uh, so let's get into the Quidditch now. I'm going to start at the very beginning. It's always a good place to start, as I say. Uh, so tell us, how did you get into Quidditch? You know, what really appealed to you about the sport when you joined? Like, did you have much of a, a sporting background before you started? Um, so I found out through Quidditch through my best friend. She went to one of our conventions where they had a little demonstration match. And back then um, in Victoria, it really hadn't developed into much at all yet. I don't think there was even a season or a league. 
but she told me about it and she went to a few training sessions for the local club. And to be honest, at the start, I kind of just thought, um, like, how ridiculous, but in a really good way. Like, this sounds like something that'll be really fun, really weird, um, just something I can do in my spare time and have a go. And the first training session I went to, they were actually ordering jerseys. And I had played sport my whole life and had never had my name on anything. And so I was like, absolutely sign me up. I want, <laughs> I want my jersey. And then I kind of just simultaneously fell in love with the sport and the people and the community. Um, there were only four clubs in Victoria when I started. So we would have a game. I think it was only every second weekend. And you would see basically the entirety of the state's Quidditch community in that one afternoon. And so you got to know everyone really well, um, really quickly. And it was just a lot of fun. You'd go every second weekend, see all of your friends, play a bit of Quidditch. Then you'd muck around and play just some sort of um, fun games. Um, so I think the community definitely was a big part. And then I actually found it really challenging. Coming from a sporting background, I really thought oh, I'll be able to play this game so easily. But it's um, a lot more physically demanding than I think a lot of people that haven't played it realise. The fact there are so many players positions rules and balls really changes the game as well um i've come from a one ball sport so adding an extra four to that really changes it uh and then i think just i like a challenge i wasn't good to start with and i really wanted to kind of master that so i just wanted to see how far i could go um and yeah as i mentioned i've i've played a lot of sport in my life i started with basketball when I was a little kid, um, moved to netball when I was maybe eight. So I've played that most of my life. Um, and then just a lot of um, athletics. So uh, cross country as well, um, triple jump, hurdles, sprinting, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then Quidditch, I think, was the next big one that I tacked on to what I like to play. Okay. That's uh, quite a sort of well-rounded response there. I can definitely relate to the jersey thing. Um that was something I found pretty cool when I first started. Had my name, I could choose my number and kind of, I guess, sort of go, wow, this, you're not necessarily like pro or anything like that, but kind of going, yeah, this is pretty legit. Uh, but it makes you feel a little bit professional. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was I? But I had my name on my top, therefore I was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And obviously you played other sports before, but because uh, you kind of start the grassroots, you don't get that kind of, I guess that that jump to the top is much bigger. So, yeah, definitely good to kind of have that. Um, you mentioned there that you kind of play play like sort of, tw sort of twice every month, like competitive games, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure at the start, because there were only the four teams, we didn't need to play that often to flesh out a season. So pretty sure it was every second Sunday we'd play. Oh, that's fantastic to, to get so many games in so quickly into playing probably gave you a real idea of what the sport's like and what it demanded from you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before COVID lockdown, we were doing every weekend, um, which as the Quidditch Association grew, it did become a bit trickier because it requires a lot more from the association, from the players and refs. But um, it's it's a good sort of setup where if you want to see what it's like, you don't have to wait a long time or travel too far to see. It's pretty accessible in Victoria. Yeah, sure. Certainly sounds like it. So uh, you played a long time for the Blackburn Basilisks. Uh, that was your team. Uh, what was it like playing for them, especially at sort of big tournaments like, like Quaffle? 
was that the national tournament in Australia? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed playing with them. That was my introduction to the uh, sport, so I think I'll always have a really little soft spot for them. Um, and I made some of my best friends in that team, or you know, I brought some of my best friends along with me to play. Um, I think a community team is always so difficult because everyone's in really different stages of their lives. So the Blackburn Basilisk had a mix of people that worked career jobs full-time and then we had uni students. So trying to find time to train was always tricky because some people are free in the evening, some people aren't. Everyone has all these different commitments. Um, because we would play on the weekends, we didn't always want to train sort of on the alternative days in case you injured yourself or you were tired from games. So I think... Sometimes with community teams, especially if you're travelling from far distances, it can be hard to be as competitive as you want just because you can't train as much as you want. Um, I really enjoyed it, though. I think it was such a lovely introduction. Everyone was really friendly. We became really close friends. It was kind of like playing with, like, your family. Um, I found it could be difficult to field a team as well. And that meant that you were often playing outside of your comfortable positions. Um, I spent one quaffle playing almost exclusively beta, which I'm not a beta. I think <laughs> I did a job, but um, yep. I definitely we had people dedicated to beating. Or I think we had a couple of injuries. Um, would have been even better. Um, I ended up seeking a fair bit too. Not really my forte, but it's it allows for growth. Um, I do think with the Basilisks, but I was captain and coach for a few of those years, I'd sort of put it to the team, um, do we want to have fun or do we want to be competitive? And we kind of try and go with the majority. Mm. And some, what some people see as competitive and fun doesn't always line up, so it's really hard to balance yeah, that. Cool. As well. um, but I really enjoyed it. I think we did, going into Quaffle, we'd always try and you know go as far as we could, be as competitive as we could. And I think for... The size of our team and sort of our skill levels, we did pretty well. I don't think we ever got past semi-finals, but we were we were competitive every single year, and we always put our best foot forward, and we, you know, kind of ran ourselves into the ground, which I really loved about the team. Okay, it sounds like you got some pretty fond memories of that time, and I guess kind of that that uh, ability to, well, I, I suppose it was kind of out of necessity that you could explore the different areas of the sport and play different positions um yeah. and uh really try things out and obviously you're saying because of the nature of the team being community a community team not always having that commitment or not being able to field as many players you would have liked kind of having that focus more i guess on fun and enjoyment and uh do you, do you feel like that helped your enjoyment that you weren't going into games and tournaments going we absolutely have to win this. Was that really kind of freeing for you? I think a little bit, yeah. We definitely had certain players on the team. Um, like we were never ever allowed to sort of suicide snitch catch. Some of our games went for two hours in our Australian <laughs> side. We wanted to end it before they introduced the snitch handicap rules. We just we would just want to stop, and we had certain players that just did not believe in giving up and sacrificing the game, which I respected and could understand. But when you have people that want to just stop playing because they're getting heat stroke, <laughs> no, we never quit. That's a, yep. that's a hard uh, um, but for sure, to strike. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. 
I think, like, for example, the Melbourne Manticores, they have such a powerful presence and name behind them. I think there's always a lot of pressure behind them going into any tournament because they're expected to perform well. Um, and whenever they've lost a game, it's sort of a big upset. So definitely being the underdog or the team that isn't as competitive, it, it, there's a lot less pressure. And I think you can sort of, yeah, go in a bit more relaxed and just hope for the best and, and know that whatever you do, it's going to be a great outcome. Yeah, for sure. I guess the point there with sort of long games where you're refusing to catch to end the game, obviously Quidditch matches can be quite short. They can be quite long. So in a way, I guess you probably got value for money. <laughs> these, the, yeah. the bigger tournaments going, oh, playing these longer games, getting more Quidditch than some of the other teams. Yeah. Like. <laughs> uh, okay, so what would you say is your favourite memory or I guess memories from playing with the team? With the Basilisks, um, probably the tournament weekends. Uh, we'd always try and stay together. We'd um, spend time together outside of the games um, with our favourite interstate teams and players as well. But just just such a good environment. Um, we normally have a little party after the Nationals as well, so going to that with everyone. It's just such a fun environment. Um, and we've even gone away as a... For a holiday sort of as a team um so even i think the off-field times are just fantastic when you find a really good group of people and you gel it's just so much fun to spend time with them in a competitive manner and then just to let your your hair loose and have fun with them as well okay sound like you're a pretty close-knit bunch then and, uh, definitely good to spend those times on and off the field fantastic so we're gonna go on to uh 20, 2014 which is when you were first selected to play for Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, that was the first time. Yeah, that was Global Games in Burnaby, Canada. So leaving Australia to fly all the way across the Pacific to, to Canada to play internationally um, against a few other teams. You actually finished second uh, to the USA. And, uh, so I guess with that tournament, uh, what were your... What was your experience of it and kind of going into it? Did you have any expectations as such? Um, yeah. Tell us what that was like. Um, it was amazing. I, If you told me before that year I would ever be able to represent Australia in anything and travel for it, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, my first time in Canada as well. I've got family over there, so it was great to go over and see them and they came and watched as well. Um, I think that was the oh, – they did have a – global games or a world cup before that didn't they but that was the first sort of one that wasn't attached to uh, the olympics or anything like that as a yeah. sideshow um it was a long day it was only played on the one day i think we were up before 6 a.m to be there for the opening ceremony and i'm pretty sure we didn't finish till after 8 or 9 p.m um it was absolutely exhausting not as many games played because it there weren't so many teams and countries there, but it was a huge day. Um, I don't know if I had any expectations. I think I was pretty unaware of what Quidditch would look like outside of Australia. And I'm not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I was definitely surprised by the intensity of some of the other um, countries. And I don't think we were – we hadn't really had a chance to train. We came from – 
different states in Victoria. The first time we trained as a team was over in Canada or America. I couldn't make it. I was I had prior engagements, but that was definitely our least prepared um, tournament team. So we didn't have that synergy. Uh, we didn't have set plays or even structures or tactics. It was sort of just go out there and play, and it worked okay for us. Yeah, but sure. um, <laughs> I mean, up until I we absolutely came second, but I, that's absolutely just the default because <laughs> <laughs> the game in America was shocking. <laughs> it was. I just remember sitting on the sideline and watching the carnage and just thinking, what is happening? And we are so far out of our depth. Um, the American team was just unreal. And I think they would have beaten every single Australian team back then. Um, it was amazing to go over and see that and then really think, okay, well, if we want to be competitive on the world stage, we need to pick up our game and look at what they're doing and take that back with us. Um, so it was incredible. It was intimidating. Um, yeah, it was just an unreal experience. And I, I think because I didn't have any expectations, they were all sort of blown out of the water. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a really kind of good introduction to international Quidditch and really getting a sense of what these other teams are like, especially the USA. Um, so I know in previous episodes, we talked with Ash Cooper and Elizabeth Yostav about their experiences with Team UK at that tournament and how it really kind of inspired them to get more involved with Quidditch and kind of improve. Uh, you, you kind of touched on it there. What do you say? How do you think uh, 2014, that experience for Australia, influenced what the team would go on to do in 2016? Um, I think it definitely woke us up a little bit and we immediately sort of put in a plan of attack and how we wanted to approach the next World Cup um, with a timeline. Definitely wanted to have training sessions before the actual tournament weekend, um, have some sort of synergy, an idea of lineups and um, tryouts as well, like more, more intensive tryouts where we could actually look at people playing together. So we went from sort of just an application-based process where you sent in a couple of videos um, and you wrote up about yourself and they picked the team from that to, to training camps. Plus they had a look at you at our state of origin competition and our national competition. So it, it really ramped up even the selection process and then the training as well. We had four training camps plus interstate teams did lots of lots of training with the groups of people that were in each of those different states and then I guess we kind of were training to beat America we sort of knew from our other games we could beat other teams um, and not knowing that much about the teams we hadn't played against but yeah it was sort of well if, if America's the top we want to train to beat the top and that's sort of what we got out of Canada. Okay so I guess in many ways it's quite similar to what happened with Team UK? I think with Team UK, it's probably a bit more of a delayed process. A lot of what Ash and other people put in with them was probably sort of more around 2015 season, kind of after that. But I guess for you guys, you really started from 2014, getting these, I guess, these bits of infrastructure in place and uh, sort of already planning for 2016 off the back of that tournament. So it's really good to hear that. Yeah, I think... 
the way the Australian team um, and group sort of run our selection is fantastic, but it can be a bit exhausting if you're trying to go back to back because you sort of spend a year trying out for the team and then the next year is training for the team and playing and you sort of have like a six-month window where you're not really actively trying out or training and then the process kind of starts again. But I think that's how it has to be done because we live so far away. You have to make sure you've got your team selected far enough in advance that they can train together and then make that journey to uh, Germany or Italy or Canada. Yeah, sure. And obviously, I guess with the European countries and now with the American countries, uh, sorry, the countries in the Americas, um, to be more technical, um, (laughs) they've got these like continental games and things like that. And that's not easy for Australia to organise. I mean, there's not much Quidditch outside of Oceania and I guess there's New Zealand then you're sort of looking at going out to Asia and yeah, there's a lot still to be set up there. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so to talk more about the 2016 World Cup is obviously, I guess, what people really want to know about. Um, it's a kind of a, a real defining moment in the sport. And you talked about there how you kind of started preparing for 2016 quite early on after 2014. Um you sort of mentioned how there were trials and things like that and trainings. But considering the sheer size of Australia, how were you able to come together and create such a cohesive team? So I think a lot of it comes down to we're lucky that our most um, developed areas of Quidditch are sort of on the one side of the country. We, we've got Victoria and New South Wales, uh, our two main states that have um, like big Quidditch teams, populations of Quidditch players um, and tournaments. And then Queensland, just above that, um, were developing. And then Perth on the other side of the country has a smaller tournament base. Um, They were definitely in Quidditch earlier than some of us, but that was probably the hardest we had one player, James Hyder, flying over from Perth. So that for him would have been a lot more difficult than everyone else. Um, but we're just lucky that it was sort of the one player from Perth as opposed to if Perth and New South Wales were where most of our team were, that's a massive trip. That would be a six-hour six flight, I think. I'm not too sure. Whereas, yeah, between Melbourne and Sydney, Victoria and New South Wales, that's a two-hour flight, if that. Um, so that's lucky. But... Um, just commitment. Players signing up for it know that you're expected to go to two, two or one of the training camps. So that's at least one flight up there and back. And then the four training camps, we split them up between um, Victoria and New South Wales just to make it easier on the players so that they only had to travel for half of them, except for James Hyder from Perth. <laughs> and so that's just, I think, yeah, you you know signing up that you're prepared to travel and that made such a difference. We had a full weekend each time we went to one of those training camps. Um, it meant it's a much longer financial commitment because you're not just saving up for the trip overseas. You're saving up to go into state um, and sort of, it's not that much, but like the food for those trips as well, or I don't think we ever had to pay for accommodation. We were pretty good with managing to host each other on those, those weekends, but you, yeah, it's just you have to be prepared to put in extra time and extra money and travel um, throughout Australia as well. Okay. Sounds like uh, 
quite a commitment that everyone was making, especially James, shout out to him. Uh, so a lot of air miles. Um, but I, I guess it probably helped having those kind of big hubs in New South Wales, um, in Victoria, um, to kind of have those bases of players and kind of have those people. Obviously, you're saying in Victoria you met quite a lot, so having all those player hubs and you could kind of, I guess, inspire each other. Um, go, okay, well, if my mates are doing it, um, yeah, I'm going to stick with it as well. You, you touched on the financial side of things. And that got me quite curious there. So, obviously, with the big tournaments so far, we haven't had a World Cup in Australia yet. Um, I'd quite like one to happen just for the holiday. It'd be great. Um, <laughs> but we haven't had one kind of really near you guys. So, how was it in terms of sort of financing the trips to these big tournaments? How did you manage like individually and collectively? Uh, I think the first year over to Canada, we actually had a few people pull out of the original offerings of positions because they couldn't afford to go. Um, and since then, we've I don't think we've had any issues like that. Um, but we've always done um, fundraising. So uh, just crowd fundraising with um, perks, so player cards, jerseys, um, signed postcards, and sort of really, really pushing that amongst friends and family, sharing on Facebook, uh, and then any individual sort of fundraising. So if you can get your friends and family to personally give you a bit of money as well. Um, and I think a few people managed to get sponsorships. I did get a um, city council grant for some money to travel as well so basically just utilizing whatever you can I think some of the university players got a bit of sponsorship from the unis as well don't quote me on that but I feel like they might have um and just saving saving up for it um I borrowed a bit of money from my dad to fly over to Canada um paid it back eventually but you just do what you you need to if you really want to travel and we had an amazing team of people who did the fundraising. They did amazing media, photo shoots, advertising, had the websites up and running, um, organising all of the, the jerseys and everything. Um, and each year people were really on top of it. In fact, I think Jen Gibson, our head coach, did a lot of that for the 2018 campaign. Um, so huge shout out to her for always being so present, not just in her coaching role, but in other areas of the team's uh, necessities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really, really kind of get that commitment that's really coming coming across there. And, uh, I guess when you're making such a big financial commitment to playing these big events, probably spurs you on to go and do that extra bit of training or to watch that bit of footage or whatever, um, knowing, well, I'm, I'm investing so much of my money into this. And I guess, obviously, time and all of that. Um, and yeah, kind of really really got to make it worth it yeah I think a lot of us did manage to turn it into a bit of a holiday as well so it wasn't just you know oh damn it I have to travel so far for a tournament like it's pretty awesome to get to travel to Italy and Germany and then see the rest of the world as well and for some people it was sort of their first big time traveling overseas so an amazing experience to travel and do it for Quidditch as well mm -hmm. fantastic uh so you mentioned Jane Gibson there who is for a long time has been one of your best friends um, sort of in and outside of Quidditch and you mentioned there uh, she was the head coach in 2018 but she was also the head coach in 2016 um, kind of playing a big role in 
the the drop bear setup. Um, so I guess for you two as kind of best friends, uh, how did it feel having such a personal connection with your coach? And I guess did the dynamic between you change at all when you're in trainings or sort of game environments? How was that? How was that experience for you? Um, awesome, awesome to get to share something so special with her. Um, and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't say it's difficult. We definitely did have to change some of the relationship depending on the environment. Um, she wasn't allowed votes for me, I think, when we were doing the um, the selection of the team. Uh, that could just be because I think in 2016 the coach possibly didn't get a vote, but um, any sort of, uh, what's it called? Conflict of interest we tried to remove. So if you had panel members, were also applying um, they couldn't vote for each other um, but the first year so Jen is absolutely incredible at what she does she's been a gymnastics coach for most of her adult life and so she has a really heavy um, coaching background but in 2016 and she's spoken about this she didn't feel as confident with the Quidditch side of it so she was very open with speaking with other players on the team so Callum Mailing. Uh, Luke, Derek, Nathan Morton, all significant um, leaders in their area of expertise, so beating and keeping and chasing. Um, she she was happy to speak to other players and myself included about what she what we thought was working, getting feedback. Um, I think if you compare that to 2018, she was much more confident in her Quidditch coaching capabilities and so she sort of elected um, people to be sort of the heads of certain areas but she was definitely full control of everything. And it was really awesome as a friend and player to see the difference in her confidence as well. Um, she put in so much work for both of those campaigns. I cannot speak highly enough of her. She had folders of plans and notes and plays and she was just absolutely incredible. And I think I just have so much respect for her. It was really easy to let her do her thing um, at training camps, um, you know, when it was sort of game off lunchtime between drills, we would just be back to being friends. But during during actual camps, um, she was my coach and that was something that I respected and you need to you need to be able to respect that. Um, it was also nice, though, to sort of have those times off field just to have a little chat with her um, and just give her a bit of my feedback as well or chat about things as, as friends or as a, a player and coach. But uh, I don't think we ever breached any sort of confidentiality with other players' information or stepping on toes or anything. I think it was, um, I, I don't know, we've been friends for so long, it was a really easy transition. We just know each other very well and just went, all right, this is your space and you do you and I'm so proud of you. That's that's, that's amazing to hear. And uh, yeah, obviously, I guess with your kind of prior sporting background, and obviously with Jen's as well, with her coaching in sport as well, you really kind of understood that athlete-coach relationship. So kind of case of, okay, it's training time, right? I'm the player rather. And then when it's social time, oh, we're friends again. It's totally fine. So I guess that really kind of speaks to you and to Jen in terms of how you manage things. I really like the how, something we talked about with Jay in our last episode, how when you get to these kind of high-level teams, and Quidditch is still a pretty young sport, um you don't have a true experts so it's quite like it's, it's pretty mature of 
a head coach just to go, okay, I know this amount, but there's a lot of things I don't know about. And I'm going to ask the team about this and I'm going to get some extra opinions in. And ultimately, you're trying to play a brand of Quidditch that you all want to play and you all enjoy and having that kind of collective ownership, I imagine, has uh, really helped really helped the team. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any shame in admitting when you need a bit of assistance or a bit of extra knowledge. And she had some incredible people to pull from. Um, Luke Derrick, who I mentioned before, amazing beater, amazing player, but watches so much footage and knows so much about international teams. He was an incredible well of information. Same with Nathan Morden. Um, we have some really statistical, heavy people in Australia, and she knew that and used them. And I think that was um, really valuable for us as a team. She wasn't afraid to reach out and get extra information and she she wasn't doing it alone. And I think that made all the difference for our 2016 campaign. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, it's a fantastic attitude to have. Uh, so we're going to jump ahead now to the actual tournament itself. You guys fly out there, um, kind of have a week or so uh, ahead of time Sort of training, sort of acclimatizing to Germany, I guess, probably the time difference and everything like that. Um, so I guess, how would you describe, I guess, the atmosphere of that week, um, both in terms of the training and then within the tournament itself? Um, a lot of fun, really intense, but wouldn't change it for the world. The, the week leading up to the tournament is really important for what Australia does and how we go about our tournaments because we use it not just to sort of acclimatise to the time zone difference, but it's very, very heavy on team building as well because we're spending a lot of time together at the tournament. Um, and in that week, we do training and fun things. So we always do a little um, like amazing race thing around the, the town we're staying in just to familiarise ourselves, um, see the sights, do something fun in a group of people, split up into groups you maybe wouldn't have spent that much time with in our training camps um, and also train. So we would break up the training days with the fun days or rest days and I think that was really important as well. Um, and the actual experience of being over there was amazing. It was much bigger, um, a lot more organised because there were 20-something countries competing. Um, yeah, it was very different to Canada. So the atmosphere was awesome. They did a little opening ceremony with food and music and we rocked up in our uniforms to sort of be professional, um, show our country, but also just have fun. So we had a little bit of a sort of dance break party thing that other countries and teams joined in on at that opening ceremony and I think that was something we did really well throughout the the tournament weekend was just um have fun and we were definitely there to compete definitely there to win but off field you need to make the most of that downtime because it is such an intensive weekend games after games mental fatigue physical fatigue it was really hot I think and wet that weekend as well yeah, so you're it did get quite warm <laughs> Yeah, manage your manage your hydration, um, and you're also there to sort of the other teams and countries. So, chatting with Italy, chatting with Germany, making friends, swapping jerseys, player cards as well. It was just an amazing experience, and I'm so glad that Australia 
um, sort of tackled it the way we did because I, I think a lot of people have said that, you know, they were so fun or we definitely had a really positive presence there. And I think that's why we had so many people rooting for us in our games the further we got through the tournament because we were just um, friendly, positive, really, really great attitude, but also really competitive as well. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like, I guess, a perfect mix of things and kind of to take that time to really sort of grow into the tournament and kind of not just leave it as like a weekend thing, but spend time in Frankfurt, get to know the place, get to spend time with each other and build that team chemistry, I guess. Um, I remember seeing pictures of uh, a lot of, the, lot of uh, the players shaving each other's heads, and going for that kind <laughs> of skinhead look, which is uh, quite striking. Um, shocking haircuts, but great team building. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and it just kind of all adds up over time. Um, I, I feel like I, I agree with like a lot of what you said there about, I guess, the way Australia embraced the tournament. Um, it, was, it was pretty noticeable from my perspective how there was kind of this narrative going on where Australia were sort of there to, as you said, have fun, but be competitive, take everything seriously. Um, but then to contrast that, you had the USA who were very serious and they didn't have that kind of pre-preparation time. Uh, so they were just kind of there, just trying to focus on the tournament so much and kind of keep themselves to themselves so that when it did come to that big game, which we're about to talk about, um, yeah, people really embrace Australia and could really root for them. Let's, let, let's jump right into it. So the final uh, you had a tough bracket play run, close games with France in the quarterfinals and then Canada in the semifinals. So going into the USA, lost them pretty heavily um, two years before. Uh, what what was said before the game? How were you inspired? We had an amazing uh, sort of hype up group in amongst the team. Uh, we had Neil Chemister and Jared Grouse, great friends off the field, great teammates in Australia and then great teammates in the Australian team. And I think a lot of our success could be handed towards them as well. Um, they created team chance with some of their other friends who came with us for every individual player. So if you scored or did something great on field, the, the sub box could chant for you. Our Australian teammates could chant for you um, and other people that had travelled. And that just creates such a... Oh, it's so exciting to hear people chanting specifically for you and it's this sense of belonging in the team. And so before most of our games, they'd give us a hype up. We'd have a little chant or a song or a dance or something and, and that was huge for our confidence, I think, also to kind of, I don't know, like work out a bit of the nervous energy. So we had um, like tactical chats from Jen. Um, Mortensen was our uh, team captain. So chats from him, hype ups from Jared and Neil. I think we kind of just had all these different levels that targeted ev everyone reacts different ways and needs a different sort of prep. So I think by having all those different sort of energies, you, you kind of targeted every single person. Um, and it was just kind of a wow we're here we this is what we trained for how amazing it's going to be a hard game um play hard stick with what we know um and just you know take it goal by goal 
play quick, play hard, quick subs, um, keep calm, don't talk back at the umpires, like don't don't give anything away that we're going to regret, no silly mistakes, and just play a hard game. And, you know, fingers crossed, all the best. <laughs> mm, sounds like a, a good mixture of things. And as you said there, like in terms of motivating, inspiring people, everyone's got their own way. Some people need to hear the tactics and the game plan, what, what's going what's gonna to happen once you get on the field. Some people need the emotional side and some people just need to relax. They just need to have fun. I feel like you had a kind of a good combination of that. The, I really liked how with the traveling Australian fans, they all these individual chants. So it's like, no one scores on Cal like, all this. Um, <laughs> it's kind of really added to it. Um, Those kind of, yeah, a really good mixture of things. Yeah, it was a really good uh, environment for the players, especially to know that you have fans that have traveled to come see you play and that are heavily there for you, not just in color, like you could see the yellow and gold, but also very, very vocal. And there's just something about having supporters there that really, I mean, the home ground advantage is very well known in, in sport. And it was almost like having just a little bit of a taste of if we were to be playing at home, that support and energy just amplified everything for us. And so when a lot of the other teams started chanting for us, that was even more so that effective mm. look at all of our supporters and I, I want to play for them as well yeah certainly added to it uh so the actual game itself um so have you, you mentioned two years ago it was a real shock playing against the US and how amazing they were what was it like to play them in 2016 um and then ultimately to to get that win and shock the world it, yeah, it was it was different. I th I think uh, maybe because once you experience something and you think about it for two years, you kind of build it up in your head. I remember playing against America and Canada actually in 2014. I just remember them being physical and um, quite terrifying to play against in that aspect. And then in 2016, I'm not sure if it's because I'd spent so long building it up or not, but I definitely didn't feel like the physicality was there as much. I, I didn't feel like they were laying as many tackles and that could have just been a tactical choice by them. But we definitely felt like we prepared for heavy, heavy hits from America and there just weren't that many tackles actually being laid. Um, so I think that kind of surprised us a little bit as well. It definitely meant that we could play a little bit differently. They were so fast, though, and I think that's what really took us by surprise as well is they recovered from a goal against them with lightning speed and almost always it was one for one. They would just return immediately, and that was something we hadn't really prepared. I mean, we always focus on get back into your defence really quickly, but they were so quick on picking up mm. that ball. Um their beta game was exactly what we expected. They're, they're so accurate from such a distance as well. And so I think, I think both exactly what I was expecting in some parts of the play, like their speed, their accuracy, um, their defence on hoops, but certain parts were a bit different than what we were prepared for. Um, and I just think we were a very, very different team. And that made a difference as well. It, it wasn't as easy for them to just completely steamroll us compared to 2014 because we actually had 
set plays and we knew what we were doing compared to sort of like this baby team traveling overseas for the first time. Okay. So it sounds like you are much more prepared. I think one thing that I've certainly noticed with Australian Quidditch is it is incredibly physical um, and also incredibly fast as well. So you'd really stepped up your own game in those two years, but also I guess sort of the way you mentally prepared for it, you expected, obviously it's going to be a very tough game. It's the US, but it's kind of a case of, I've certainly found when I've prepared for a game or just anything in life, we kind of think, oh, this is going to be really tough. This is going to be hard. So then when you actually get into it, oh, hang on a minute. Because I've built this up in my mind as being something really difficult. It's not as difficult as I've made it out. So yeah, it's really kind of interesting to have that psychological approach yeah absolutely that said though I definitely feel like sometimes just personally when the stakes of a game are a lot higher I find it emotionally a lot higher harder to sort of keep it together so in our game against France um I found that game very emotional because we come so far we as you said it was a really close game we almost lost that and to come so far and be so close to the grand final and then almost lose that was sort of heartbreaking and almost like I didn't feel like I could focus and going into the America game it was kind of really up and down I felt great in some parts of the game and then some parts of the game I just thought I don't know if I can focus enough to be on the field but that was what was great about our coach and our sort of sub boxes we had someone watching for that stuff and we were making sure we were going quickly so no one got too fatigued or too overwhelmed or just really quick movements for us I think was really key to make sure that we were fresh physically and mentally for the game because it was it was very intimidating mentally to go into that game yeah for sure definitely uh so we get to the end of the game usa have a catch it's disallowed um and you kind of have that moment waiting going oh is that good is it not um as we say it doesn't happen and the game goes on and then demo pulls the snitch Lies there on the ground, holding up. And after a bit of kind of a debate, the catch confirmed. What are your feelings and emotions in that moment? That was the longest uh, 20, 30 seconds. I don't know. It felt like they were debating for five minutes for that snitch catch. Um, shock and so much raw emotion. Um, because I think as the game progressed, we sort of realised we this is actually within our grasp and this is achievable. And then the reality of the fact that we'd be the first team to beat America and, yeah, it was just um, it was amazing. I think I, I wanted to hold on to that feeling for so long because it was just sort of nothing I'd ever felt before of just so much... Um, yeah, just raw emotion of, of pride and disbelief and oh, it was just incredible. And the way everyone just rushed onto the field too, like it was just nothing I'd ever experienced before, probably will never experience again. So thankful to be a part of that. Um, and, yeah, just there's a few videos of the sideline and, and that catch and I love to rewatch it because it's sort of like getting a bit of a taste of that feeling again and just how unreal it felt I don't know if you've seen the one of, of the Australian sub box but it's focused on the players when they call the catch good and it's so funny watching everyone react because some some of the players just drop to the ground because they've wanted this so much and it's just so much emotion that their body just can't handle it I think Callum Mailing just 
empties a water bottle on top of his head. Um, <laughs> half the team just explodes and runs off. It was just uh, so much raw emotion. It was incredible. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just, yeah, such a powerful response. And uh, yeah, I believe a lot of the people who are there just had in some way, they all experienced some of those emotions and obviously kind of being the people who did it. Um, yeah, obviously those emotions are 10 times, hundred times greater. So it's, uh, yeah, incredible to hear. It, um, it kind of felt like the people's win because everyone sort of reacted and that's absolutely nothing against America. I think they sort of had a bit of a tough run that tournament it wasn't we hate America, we hate those players. It was just how incredible that someone's beat them because they are such a powerhouse and have been unbeaten and are, you know, just forced to be reckoned with. Um, I think that's why people were rooting for us because it was just the underdog. Everyone loves an underdog. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of the sport as a whole and the history of it, it was such a monumental moment because obviously they've been so dominant having created the sport back in 2005 having so so much experience and talent within the sport, so many players to pick from, and just having this sort of unstoppable force. And I think a lot of people took real inspiration from that, and also the Americans as well. Um, and there's so, certainly sort of a shake-up in the way they did things uh, in their national team. So it was a very positive thing for the sport to have such, a, such an incredible result. Uh, so we're going to focus on Arthur tournament now. Uh, I guess like well, there's the, the amazing after party afterwards which is still one of the best nights of my life incredible scenes um, for the people who were there um, and uh, you went back home to Australia after that um, what was I guess the re- what was the reaction back back in Australia how was the victory received back home uh, it's funny coming back it's such a niche environment and group of people so in the quidditch community huge amazing phenomenal you're a superhero you're amazing and then that's that's such a tiny fraction of my life and it's weird sort of living this moment of feeling amazing and being part of history and then the rest of my life doesn't care at all and it's just (laughs) so funny sort of dichotomy of I went back to work and no one really cared or knew but then my close teammates on the black the basilisks were so excited we actually had a welcome home party um james my boyfriend at the time was also a basilisk and on team australia so when we landed in australia we had our families were there a lot of the basilisks and players had signs for us so you kind of are almost like this really mini mini little like celebrity for a little while in this really small community but then the rest of the world is completely oblivious so it was it's really it was strange but in the community, uh, it was yeah. Everyone was so excited. We had a we had a party when we got back for the Victorian players. We were like, "Welcome back, well done." Um, it did sort of have a tiny flow and effect. After we won, I had a couple of um, I had a couple of sort of mini jobs where I went out to primary schools and um, did like a, a Quidditch coaching session with the players. Um, even to my old high school, I got invited back there twice, which teaching teenagers Quidditch is so intimidating. They are <laughs> much less open than than small children. Um, I've even been back to a primary school to 
like hand out awards they actually run their own quidditch tournament and so I was like the guest star for that year which was really funny the kids were very very cute I almost felt like saying I'm not a real celebrity (laughs) I am am a normal person who plays a really weird sport but they were so excited to meet me and shake my hand and I gave out their awards so I think you just have to accept it for what it is like it's nothing it's nothing too big outside of the sport but wow what an amazing thing to actually get to experience yeah I can, uh, sounds like a, a real interesting mix of uh well um, emotions uh from from people back home obviously the people in the know they know how momentous it is but obviously not everyone knows about quidditch and even if they do they don't see it as quite as big as it actually is um so kind of a, a interesting mix of kind of being completely back to normal and being this celebrity figure and having all the adulation and sort of congratulations from everybody. Um, what was there in the way of like media attention? Was there anything at all or? Yeah, we did. I mean, as soon, I think that year the Australian teams were struggling a little bit in whatever we were competing in. Normally Australian cricket, soccer, whatever, we, we do quite well on the international stage, but I think we just lost the soccer or something. And so um, someone had caught wind of Quidditch in Australia and the fact that we were sort of the last team representing internationally that was doing well. And then we won. So, yeah, there was definitely, I mean, they do say all press is good press, but it was a mix of just taking the piss of us mm. and then sort of, well, you know, it's Australia, who cares, get on board, we love whatever Australians do. So there were a lot of... Um, sort of Facebook groups, articles written up, um, a lot of radio interviews. I think I did two or three the follow after that big night you mentioned, I did two or three radio interviews and they sort of lasted the whole of the day because of the time difference. I actually flew out to Paris that night, like the following night, and then I was up till eleven PM chatting with a radio like radio host that night. Um oh. but did I think there was maybe like the classical sort of 15 minutes of fame it lasted for a little while we had a lot of interviews radio newspaper that kind of thing and then it kind of did die down again but for sure it it definitely elevated knowledge of the sport and gave it a lot more of a media presence which was great for growth back home super super the i guess kind of adds the whole kind of celebrity aspect of uh, being a world champion and getting to talk to radio stations and have these interviews and yeah must have been pretty special. I guess one prominent aspect of that Drop Bears team was the role of female players and just well, f- female presenting players, both obviously in the team and obviously with Jen as the head coach, things like that. Um, and guess how and how much they were sort of valued. Um, it's something that really kind of struck with me. Um, and from my kind of observation of Australian quality, I think this is something that's further reflected within the Australian game as a whole. Um, sort of a lot of female players taking up key roles in leadership um, and kind of just prominent players within the community. So how do you say Australia as a whole has approached playing Quidditch as a mixed gender sport? I, I think we've done really well. I honestly don't know much about how other countries can compare, but speaking just from what I know here, um, I think we do our best to be inclusive. Um, we have a... I don't know what you call it, like a, it's not a tournament, but this sort of weekend or event that's focused for um, sort of non-male players 
um, that's started in the last couple of years up in Queensland. And that's mostly just to focus on um, female, female presenting, non-binary, just the non-male side of the, the sport um, and getting them comfortable. Um, I think everyone can sort of see that a part of the sport that does fall down is, um, I guess, like the, the confidence of, of the females on field and and it's just such an, a difficult conversation because people just say well you know just train more or do more but it's difficult to do that sometimes so they've created this environment where you can sort of run drills and, and play in a really safe environment and just focus on your own confidence um and as you mentioned yeah Jen I think she was the only female head coach when we went to Germany and we had uh, female leadership positions in 2018 as well. Uh, a lot of our teams in Australia have female coaches or um, uh, captains or vice captains. And I think we really value what the females have to say. Some of our most knowledgeable people when it comes to plays and other teams and other countries are some of our females. Nicola Gertler is incredible. Um, and some of our, our best, fittest players are females. So you'd be silly not to respect that and, and do whatever you can with these incredible players, especially if other countries and other teams haven't quite grasped the ability to do that. Because as you mentioned, yeah, it was definitely, um, I think, what set us apart a little bit. We, we were comfortable putting two female players in our chaser lineup, which meant we had... Um, positions where we could do a double male beater or we could do a really strong double female beater and have a really, really big, tall, stacked chaser lineup depending on what we were coming up against. So I think it gave us a lot of flexibility on the international stage. It didn't just mean we had this is our team and our lineup, this is our play. We, we trained to play against what we came up against so we could change our defence, our offence, be more aggressive, be more patient and waiting. And I think by allowing, I think by, by trusting your female players, you just only allow more growth. Obviously, we're not perfect. I think there's always room for growth. Um, and some people will probably disagree, but I think we've, we've really tried our hardest on a local level and, and going further as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a very detailed response. The as you as you said, it's not the easiest of topics to discuss. But obviously, with Quidditch being as the only mixed gender contact sport in the world, it's an important one to be having and to making sure all uh, all types of players are felt but respected and included within the game. The kind of one thing I've noticed with I guess Australia as a country, it's kind of renowned as like a sports mad country and people are playing sports from an early age. Obviously, in your sporting background, you were doing like netball and basketball and all these things, athletics. Um, I guess that probably really helps as well, having players of all genders having played some kind of sport before and kind of having an idea of what's expected at kind of really competitive, a really competitive level of any sport. Um and just kind of carrying that on into Quidditch, which you, which you don't necessarily get in other countries. Yeah, for sure. We are definitely a heavy sporting country. That said, I think a lot of Quidditch players have kind of 
been drawn to Quidditch because they haven't found a sport they did feel comfortable playing as well. So that's the other side of it is it's it's drawn a lot of people that haven't really played the sport before. So it's great for them to develop those skills and confidence in a different environment than usual. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point to make as well. Um, so we're going to shift gears slightly. Um, so after your triumph in 2016, you suffered a pretty devastating knee injury. Could you talk us through what happened with that? Yeah, so we were playing in our local Victorian league. Um, and I, I've just I've played sport my whole life and I know how to land and I've never done any serious injury before. And it was just, I don't know, that it all, all it takes is a split second to sort of stop focusing. And I was... Um, we are playing against the Raxperts. It was a really fun game. A lot of our good friends were on that team. And I made a fast break up the left wing, cut across the field, shot on goal, really cool, or it felt like a really cool over-the-shoulder <laughs> shot. And I just landed really badly. I think, I, you know, it was a bit of a, like, because I had friends on the opposition sideline, it was a bit of, like, a show-off shot that I normally would never do to sort of, like, have some fun with them. Yeah, of course. And Therefore, I sort of landed in a way that I normally would never land. And my knee just popped out right underneath me. And to be honest, I um, I didn't know much about knee injuries. I was pretty naive about them. Dubbed off, um, taped myself back up, jumped back on again, felt a bit tender. Uh, I think I jumped for a deflection on goal. And when I landed, my knee gave way. And that's the first second I sort of thought, ooh, this might be a bit more serious than than I thought it was, but I was still sort of hoping. Maybe it's just a sprain or I've jarred it like you kind of jar a finger. And, yeah, it wasn't until after the game where I was supposed to go meet up with someone and I went to, like, walk to my car and I could barely walk. And then I thought, oh, I'm not even going to be able to drive my car. And, yeah, went to hospital, um, had an MRI and a scan and all this stuff. And I think within a couple of days, yeah, I got the news that I'd, done a full um, ACL tear, uh, I'd done blistering of the cartilage, bit of a meniscus tear, like I'd pretty, I'd blown out my my knee proper good and yeah, that I'd, I'd never really looked up ACL injuries or knew what that meant and it was completely devastating in a, a literal split second, my entire sort of life and who I define myself as was just taken away and that's something that I don't think you can ever really prepare yourself with with sport is how quickly everything can just get ripped away from you yeah it's pretty incredible here and obviously at the time kind of running on adrenaline you're playing the game and then yeah you sort of go hang on a minute this isn't quite right so obviously didn't quite hurt initially but obviously you realized over time it's pretty pretty serious oh when I actually did it it was agonizing but it was as you mentioned adrenaline sort of kicks in and it sort of went from being this intense sharp kind of crunch pain to oh yeah maybe this is okay and the adrenaline kept me going as soon as I stopped playing the pain just skyrocketed again Mm. so yeah not fun no definitely not um so obviously you had surgery on uh your knee to to fix it and during your recovery time, you set up an Instagram page to track your progress um, at Tay.cl. That rehab, I think it is. <laughs> Just reading it off here. 
Um, yeah, if anyone wants to see it, um, it's it's pretty pretty uh, interesting to see. Um, you know, what inspired you to document the recovery process in this way? And what did you get out of the experience? So I was really lucky. I managed to get my uh, surgery done within, I think, three weeks, which is uh, it's both very quick and, and a bit too long for my liking. Um, I've got private health, so I managed to see one of the best surgeons in Victoria pretty quickly, but he was on holiday for those initial two weeks, so it wasn't as quick as I would have liked. But, I mean, going through the public system, sometimes you're looking at a month, months waiting. Mm. But it did that I had those th- – uh, my knee was pretty much locked up. I couldn't, I couldn't walk on it or bend it. So I had significant um, muscular dystrophy going into my surgery which kind of put me in a worse position coming out of it. They do say, like, if you can keep up movement, keep up strength and exercise, and I just couldn't do that. So I sort of came out of surgery much weaker and with much less movement than I was expecting. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to sort of achieving things and and working, going for goals. So I... I wasn't seeing any change at all in the first couple of weeks and I found that um, soul-destroying. I was, you know, Googling madly trying to trying to get information on what stage should I be at and, and how much movement should I have and looking at other people's rehab and comparing myself and then there is that, that tiny part of the back of your brain that goes, well, what if I never get full movement back? Because it's always a possibility. If you don't, if you don't rehab properly, you, you may not get back to where you were. And, and I really wanted to um, get into a very physical job at that stage and I wanted to go for um, other sports and I wanted to play Quidditch again at the high level. And, and the thought of possibly never getting to do that again really scared me. And I sort of really had to sit back and think, how, how am I going to get through this mentally? Um, it was so, so mentally challenging. And the only thing I could really think of was, well, if I start physically tracking things with photos and measurements, <clears throat> at least I can see the changes in that way. And even if it's just a centimetre at a time or if I can't tell a difference, sometimes by looking back at photos and videos, then you can see the difference. And, and it's very much when you're living in that moment, you, you can't see the differences so I started taking photos of of my legs um measurements of of sort of the circumference of the muscle I would feel myself walking so I could look back and go oh wow actually a week ago I couldn't you know get this much movement in my foot now I can and feel myself walking upstairs so it became um just a way to track my progress and keep me sane and then it became a way to keep myself accountable and also just keep everyone involved. It can be quite draining trying to talk to 10, 20, 30 different people about how you're going and we're having that conversation over and over again. And my cousin actually, he started a Twitter account when he had leukemia and that was how he kept everyone involved. He would just sort of put up his blood test results, how he was feeling, and it just meant that he didn't get inundated with all these conversations. So I think I probably drew a bit of um, inspiration from that as well. And then I found a really great community online as well um, of just other people going through the same thing. And that meant you could bounce ideas off people, uh, get feedback, emotional support. I really can't stress enough how difficult an injury like that is. And I don't think unless you've gone through it, you, you, you can't really empathise. You can try, but it's just it's 
completely enveloping. It, it takes up your entire world. You have to learn how to walk again. It's so difficult. So finding a group of people that have also experienced that and are also still going through it, it just makes you feel a lot more, I guess, seen and supported. Like my my close friends were phenomenal. I cannot thank them enough. They were such fantastic physical and emotional supports for me. But also having that little community was really, really, it was amazing. It was just um, just a bit more sanity during an insane time. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. Um, obviously, you mentioned, I guess, the physical side of it, but the mental toll it took on you, you kind of went in, into there. Just having this little project to, yeah, to gauge your progress throughout the recovery. To go, okay, well, a few months ago, I couldn't do this, but now I can do, I can move my, my knee this little bit more, or I can do this movement that I couldn't do. And obviously, finding that community and that support, um, yeah, it sounds like a really good way to improve both physical health and obviously your mental health as well during, during this period you stay connected with quidditch um you set up a new community team which is, uh, Wamping willows qc and they actually won quaffle in 2017 it's a massive massive achievement however due to your injury you weren't able to participate as you would have liked so how do you reflect on uh winning that national title and kind of what emotions do you have around it nothing but positivity uh, it's funny, I don't feel like I didn't earn that national title, even though I, I pretty much didn't play that that season and that, that actual tournament. But um, that team was sort of created because we had lots of players in different teams that all had a very similar drive and, and goal that we wanted to achieve. And I sort of briefly touched on that with the Basilisk, how I'd sort of try and float what we wanted to do and I sort of just realised, especially after playing for Australia, that I I really wanted to be competitive and proper, proper competitive winning state, winning nationals. So I, I didn't feel like it was fair to keep pushing a, a local team that, that wasn't really where I was mentally. So, yeah, we found people around the state and other teams that had the same drive and, and mindset and had a great season I managed to play maybe a quarter of it before I did my knee and then I just stayed very involved because it's important when you've got an injury to stay involved in your sport mentally um but also it was really really advantageous for us to have someone on the sidelines whose role was purely subs and coaching and watching and um I actually had some of the players say it made all the difference to have me there running the subs calling the plays as I saw them because I don't think a lot of other teams have someone dedicated. Like you've got someone who really knows what's going on, but they're usually also playing or they're on the field and it's a lot harder to, to call things when you're on the field in the middle of the play. And um, Nathan Morton once said I was the emotional barometer of the team. So I really took that to heart because I noticed that, yeah, if I started to get a bit frustrated, not at the team, but or just at things that were happening, it kind of flowed through. Um, and so I really sort of learnt that year to, um, I guess, be stoic and present positively, even if I was getting really frustrated by what I was seeing out in the field because of the effect it can have on the players, and took that into our national competition. And we had a really difficult run. We had a really serious concussion on one of our players who was our key um, seeker. Losing him was, oh, it was really stressful. Uh, we had other injuries. It was a really wet weekend. It was really difficult but 
by keeping sort of calm and focusing on my subs and the role that I could do, um, I still felt like I was very, very heavily involved. And then they actually let me play for like 20 seconds in one game okay. and I got an assist on a goal. Oh, actually, I got a goal. So I kind oh, of super. Went tiny, tiny little bit. <laughs> but that team, oh, they're just beautiful people, really like-minded, really competitive. We trained so hard. We actually created a few um, playing styles or defensive setups that hadn't really been seen yet that year. And it was really exciting to take that to that national stage and sort of go, this is what we've done this year, um, bring it on. And it worked. We won. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a really good outlet, out, sort of outlook to have there. Um, obviously, when you can't play, you can't be on the field, it can be quite frustrating. But to be able to participate in that way and be that presence on the sidelines, both to encourage the team and to be able to manage the subs and sort of do all the tactical things that a lot of players within the game when they're in the heat of the moment, just can't do it's something we talked about a lot with Louis in his episode um, and how that's always kind of been his down downfall with Antwerp in Belgium. So sounds like you were able to have quite a, a positive influence on the team, even though you couldn't really step up the field apart from the, that amazing 20 seconds, um, <laughs> which must've been incredible to, to do that sort of during your, your recovery process. Um, but yeah, that was great. Very fun. <laughs> For sure. Um, I'm just going to kind of close out this section here. Uh, what piece of advice would you have, uh, would you have liked to have had uh, going into uh, your injury? Um, and kind of what advice would you like to give someone going through this kind of recovery process? Probably two. I had a, when you sent through the questions, I really had a thought about, a think about this. Probably two things. One of them, pretty stereotypical, um, try not to compare yourself too much to other people's progress. And Googling can be so scary. And if you can, don't don't look up too much stuff. I almost over-prepared for my surgery and I freaked myself out and it was fine. So I guess the first piece of advice would be everyone has their own journey when it comes to injury and rehab and surgery and they can look so different to someone else's and comparison can be such a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. So take it as your own. And like I did, maybe keep keep a record so you can still see your progress without comparing against other people. And the second one is um, probably a little bit different, but it's okay to sort of redefine yourself in that process. For me, it being my first major injury, I I kind of realised in this this experience that I really define myself as an athlete. And you don't have to be a national player or even that successful, but if playing sport is a really big part of your life, then that kind of becomes a part of who you define yourself as. And when you lose that with an injury like this, you you lose a part of yourself, and that can be really really scary. So I. I also use sport as a coping mechanism. So I couldn't go for runs to calm myself down or when I was having a, a bad mental health day. And it's important to find other ways to, I guess, soothe yourself, calm yourself. And then if you come out the other side and sport isn't as important to you, that's also okay. The journey is completely unique and you just do whatever you have to do to get through. I actually had 
a partial retear of my ACL a year or so later and it was fine. I didn't need surgery. Uh, it healed fine. I'm, I'm absolutely fantastic now. But in that brief period between the injury and getting the diagnosis where I thought I might need surgery again, I really had to sit down and think, who am I now and what do I want going forward? And I think at that point I decided if I had done my knee again, I didn't think sport was for me anymore, like in any capacity. And I was okay with that because of my first injury where I sort of, I guess I found out more about who I was outside of being an athlete. And that sounds so cheesy and corny, but <laughs> yeah. um, it was a really eye-opening experience in a lot of different ways. So yeah, it, I guess it's okay if you come back from it and you want to keep playing sport, but it's okay if you don't. Like it's just everyone's injury is completely unique. Yeah, I think that's two really fantastic points there, both to kind of don't rush into things, take things as you go, because you say everyone recovers at different rates. And also, yeah, just, well, giving some, yourself some time to think and really get to know yourself as a person, I believe you really did that. And that's, yeah, uh, amazing, really, um, just to have that presence. So thanks for sharing that advice. So we're going to jump ahead to 2018 World Cup now where you were selected once more to play for Australia, uh, having recovered sufficiently from your injury uh, to play again, which considering everything you've just talked about and everything you've been through was an incredible achievement to reach such a high level again. Uh, so in terms of preparation beforehand and also during the event itself, how would you compare 2018 to 2014, 2016? As returning world champions, did it feel different? There was definitely more pressure kind of how we spoke before about you know playing for a team that is just having fun compared to teams that have a reputation coming back defending a title is always a lot more pressure attached with that it's a lot more intimidating and I guess that um notion of if you don't if you don't achieve as good as before you failed that definitely sat with a few people um and not that that means we have failed but I think that's just that common notion of this is what the previous team did, so we have to do as good to be successful. I think the training camps, the whole process was pretty similar. Um, we had the same application process, the same Sydney, New South Wales training sessions. We had that week beforehand in Italy where we trained and we did team bonding and building. I think the main part was just we've shown we can do it. And, I mean, we won, but it was a very close game. We were down on, on the board and it was a win by snitch catch. So can we do it again, but really make a statement of it's not just luck. We are here to stay. We are still dominant two years later. So we watched a lot of um, American footage. I think we prepared for a lot of other teams. We definitely knew that America would be up there, um, Belgium, France, uh, we sort of prepared specifically for certain teams that we thought would possibly, you know, be hurdles along the way to getting another championship. But I think that the process was probably very, very similar. Just that sort of weight of we've now done it once, we're expected to do it again, definitely added a bit more pressure. Okay, that's quite interesting to hear. Is uh, I guess from the outside looking in, just like at the tournament, there was still a sense of the US were the team to beat and a lot of people kind of expected it and they'd obviously changed things up from 2016. So 
kind of looking for the outside in, it was there was still this element of kind of being the underdog and having that extra support from everybody else. But obviously within the actual team, there was that element of expectation, which, yeah, as the reigning champions, you'd probably expect from people. So jumping into those two US, USA games at the tournament, obviously you played them on day one uh, in the, the, the group play stage thingy uh, and then played them in the quarterfinals, unfortunately. Um, so didn't end up getting a medal uh, at the tournament, which realistically in terms of the way the team played, probably deserved that. Um, just what changed in that time between 2016 and 2018 playing the US? Uh, like in the game against them, yeah. I think we definitely felt more confident and rather than sort of oh, like seeing opportunities that, that the US had sort of given us, we were making our own opportunities. And I definitely think in 2016, uh, the US was sort of running the pace of the game and in control of it. And then in 2018, I think it was a lot more fluid between who was in control of the game. Uh, we were up a couple of goals at one stage. Um, and I definitely think it wasn't just Australia setting the pace or America. It was very much more of an equal game, I guess. Um, they they ran away with it both times. I, I don't think we really changed our game gameplay as well as we should have. Um, they sort of saw what we were doing in the first game and then just took it to us in the second game. But they were closer games. So I think there was more confidence um, and more belief. Like we knew we'd beaten them once before in 2016. And especially with such a close game in the pool play, it definitely made us think, well, this is actually achievable. We can absolutely knock them out. It was, um, I won't lie, it was quite frustrating to have to play them in pool play. And then in the, the quarterfinals, it, it sort of felt like we probably should have been on opposite sides of the pool to be able to meet up there. But, um, you know, we can't change the past. And that was what the pool play was decided IQA did the best thing they thought for the tournament. Um, so, yeah, we just we did the best of what we could and they were an amazing team and they beat us absolutely well-deserved. We were just very close and it kind of, yeah, as I mentioned sort of in 2016, travelling that far to not come home with a, a medal is pretty rough, but we decided we wanted to really hold our heads high and make sure we still played the best Quidditch we could in our remaining games. So I think we ended up finishing fifth. Um, but we, every one of those games to get to the fifth position, we, we attacked it as if it was our grand final game against America because we wanted to sort of show, and I, I'm, it's nice of you to say that the team played so well, you, you sort of thought we should deserve a medal because that's kind of the attitude we wanted to impress upon people is, you know, damn, we got knocked out, but we're still here to show that we can play really, really good Quidditch. Mm, that's a really interesting perspective to have because you, you, you either find with those consolation games that certain teams go, oh, we're knocked out now and people's sort of desire and motivation to win drops and you kind of go, oh, just just get through these games, get through the tournament. Um, you see kind of a few upsets here or there, but you kind of had the reverse where, yeah, you traveled so far you committed so much like yeah well we're going to finish as high as we can and although we haven't got what we came for we're going to finish and do the best that we can and obviously finishing fifth was the best you could and yeah made the most of it absolutely super um 
So we're going to focus more on, I guess, recently. Uh, you've stepped away from Quidditch uh, nowadays and moved on to different things in your life, uh, both in terms of your professional life and your sporting life. Could you tell us about what you've got on to do outside of Quidditch and how, I guess, your Quidditch experience has influenced those things? Yeah, so I am um, AFL, Australian Football League. Actually, I don't even know what that stands for. That's really bad. But our football <laughs> league in Australia, um, is huge. That's what started last night. In the last few years, we have managed to get a professional women's league. So that's sort of something that I was getting interested in just before I hurt my knee. And so that was something that motivated me coming out of my injury was I wanted to represent Australia again. And I really wanted to at least try out for one of the AFLW teams. Um, and I was really lucky that I got invited to trial with Richmond, who is one of the big clubs in Australia. Um, I had an amazing experience trialing with them. I did get invited back, but unfortunately I did my partial retear at the training session. Um, but that was sort of, that was almost enough for me. I, I was so close to sort of jumping into that world right before I did my knee that I felt like, I don't know, I, I almost that big scratch, that itch that I couldn't get to of what if, and I'll never know if I was good enough. And um, I mean, I, I still didn't, I got invited back. I don't know if that would have gone anywhere, but even just the chance to trial and know that I was good enough for a second attempt, sort of, that was enough peace for me. Um, and I actually got found for footy because of Quidditch. I, I had another team approach me and ask if I'd like to trial. I don't think I have that drive or commitment anymore. And I don't really like to do things um, half-assed if I'm going to go for a team or play a sport I really want to commit fully. So at this stage, footy is sort of not a priority. Um, but I am playing um, netball in the Victorian Netball League, which is really awesome. Having grown up playing netball, um, you, back in the 90s, you sort of were told you can't do netball as a career, you can't play professionally, there's no money in the sport. And I'm not at that level where I'm getting I'm getting paid, but I'm playing at a very high level that I never thought I'd be able to. So, and again, I think I was sort of um, Quidditch sort of, as weird as it is, at that sort of high level, it, it does come with a little bit of respect, even for people that don't know nothing about the sport. So it has definitely opened sporting pathways for me. Um, and even I, I sometimes put it on job interview um, forms because it starts a conversation and it makes you a bit more memorable. And I am um, working as a full-time firefighter now, which is a lifelong dream since I was a little kid. And I think Quidditch really, really helped me get through that process, both physically. Um, I was applying as I was doing my knee rehab and um, the gym work I was doing has made me the strongest I've ever been in my life. So a lot of the process of applying to be a firefighter is physical. So it kind of gave me that physical strength. Um, but also playing on that international level gave me answers to the questions in my panel interview of high stress and situations and working in a team and, and the sort of things that they're looking for in that career path. I think I got a lot of experiences from Quidditch for that. And again, weird thing to make you memorable and stand out. So I'm so thankful for Quidditch for what it's given me in the past and for how it's uh, sort of taken me to where I am today, both in my sporting career and in my business personal career. Wow. It's uh, pretty incredible to hear. It's uh, got quite a, a resume built up there of 
world champion or have got to a very sort of high level with uh, AFL, uh, getting that trial and things and sort of almost the top for, the, for netball. And then on top of that, you save lives. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, quite something. Um, amazing to hear how your experience within the sport have uh, really impacted what you've gone on to do. Um, you kind of touched on it there with this last question, the, our main bit of the episode. Um, sort of looking at how you reflect on your time playing Quidditch and what it's given you. Uh, so do you stay, still stay in touch with your Quidditch friends? And would you ever consider coming back to it in some capacity, whether that's kind of on pitch or off the pitch, kind of behind the scenes? Yeah, I, I'm so thankful for my time with Quidditch. Uh, I think it gave me some of the best years socially and sport and travel. I mean, when I talk to people about going overseas with um, Team Australia, the way I sort of explain it is imagine going to these beautiful countries with 30 of your closest friends and getting to travel and have fun. It's just such a unique, amazing experience, and I'm so thankful for that. I've met some incredible people in the sport. Um, I definitely don't keep in contact with everyone, but I've got I've made some really, really fantastic friends in the sport in Australia, across Australia. Um, so I still keep in contact with them. And whenever I sort of go into state, I do try to see them. Um, I, probably one of my favourite parts of the sport is because I've been so lucky to get to travel for it. I have friends across the world now. So if I ever go to Norway, I've got a connection there. And I have friends in Canada and the UK and just so many beautiful people across the world that um, I never would have met. And I'm so thankful for that. Uh, I have thought about where I want my future with Quidditch to lie. I think possibly I, if I were to play again, it would need to be purely playing. I don't think I would be able to take on any sort of coaching or um captaining or any sort of extra um, responsibility. I do think that burned me out a little bit and it was completely self-inflicted. I chose to captain and coach and be involved in the state teams and the international teams. But when you sort of do that for six years, six or seven years, it really does sort of start to kind of burn the candle from both ends. So if I were to come back, I think it would be very, very much in a casual capacity. Um, I would love to travel as a spectator for the World Cup. I think that would be so fun to really enjoy that environment as a non-player. Um, maybe maybe coaching, but I'm not sure I have the time. <laughs> so yeah, definitely, it's a big thing with coaching, I, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If I did anything off-pitch, I would, I would want to make sure I'm 100% committed time-wise and I'm just not sure I'll ever be able to get to that stage. But mm. I definitely... Think I'm always going to sort of just have my ears out listening for what's happening in the Quidditch community. I don't think you can ever really leave. Um, <laughs> but no, I've it's been such an amazing time and it's something I'm so, so thankful for, for everything it's given me, friends and travel and experience and just, yeah, it's an, just an amazing sport. Yeah, that's a really good, I guess, summary of uh, your emotions there. And uh, obviously you had so many fond memories and incredible experiences and... Uh, yeah, it's just it's not something you can really just fully step away from. I, I know some people do, but when you kind of had all those sort of really big emotional moments and you made all these friends all over the place, yeah, it's uh, definitely something to stick around with. Um, and yeah, if you get to play again, that's that's fantastic. 
Uh, so we're going to move on to the mailbag questions now. Um, so thank you to everyone who sent these in. Uh, first question. Uh, how do you spell your name? Is it Tanya? Tara? What's up with that? Yeah, I, <laughs> I knew one of these was going to be a question. It's actually um, Gail, G-A-L-E. But no, <laughs> uh, people, I don't know why it's so difficult. It's, I think it's a pretty easy name to pronounce and spell, but my whole life no one, no one ever gets it right. So that's just a very big ongoing gag is um, <laughs> I don't have a name. I'm, I'm the nameless and the all named. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I guess it's not the most common name, so uh, you can probably see why people misspell it. Um, yeah, people need to get better with that. Yeah. Um, so, see, what was it like scoring on the US? It was pretty exciting. <laughs> um, I, something I didn't think I'd be able to do, and it just, oh, it was kind of like being, I imagine what being shot with like an EpiPen or adrenaline feels like just, oh, I could have, I could have hulked out on the field when it happened. It felt amazing. <laughs> uh, and I rapidly had to kind of go, okay, we're still in the middle of a game. You can't kind of do a victory lap like focus. But <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was really cool. I think oh, just constantly being able to push past your own expectations of what's capable i i'm pretty harsh on myself with what i'm what i can and can't do on field so i didn't think it was something i could do so to do it kind of was like oh well you know pat on the back Taya, that was awesome fantastic who's the best teammate you've ever played with oh i've got a real fond spot for neil chemister um he's such a fantastic person a lot of energy um he's he's been on team australia twice as well i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's um yeah. one of our he's we're also big Neil fans over here yeah <laughs> that's true he's, he's just so much fun um and so competitive he's he's a great mix of being competitive and fun and i've done um sort of local um I can't remember what they're called, but where you pick your own team and you just play fantasy. We've, we've been on yeah. fantasy where we've been the captains and that was one of the most fun weekends. And he's just, he's just fantastic and really elevates and he believes in you so much. There's something about playing a game with someone who sort of believes in you more than you do yourself. You don't want to let them down. So they really push you to play better and be better. And I've just, I don't, I think I've played some of my best Quidditch with him or because of him. So I really, I love, I love Neil. He's fantastic. Mm, a good, good shout out there for Neil there. So how tall are you actually? <laughs> um, there's a rumor going around in the fire brigade that I'm like six foot six, which I'm not, but <laughs> I just feel like people are going to be let down when they meet me because I'm not that tall, but I am. <laughs> Just shy of six foot two. I'm 187 centimetres. So I'm definitely, I'm a tall female. Yep, that's for sure. Uh, not quite six six, but yeah, certainly impressively tall. Um, let's see, how has Quidditch helped in the other sports you play? I think playing any sport that has a lot of distinctively offensive and defensive plays and setups is really great for I guess like a tactical mindset so 
I mean, it's very different. You've got so many different balls and players. It's not like they're directly applicable to other sports, but I think it's definitely helped my mindset tactically um, playing netball and um, particularly learning how to use your body and not contact because um, netball is a non-contact sport. And as, as I've played Quidditch, I've, I've, lived through the different contacting rules where you can't um, set a pick with moving feet and all of that sort of stuff. So I think definitely being a physical presence and blocking off players, Quidditch has helped me be a much better netballer because of that. And that's kind of been a really good flow over effect. Um, and maybe even just confidence. Playing a mixed gender sport, which is contact, was quite intimidating at the start. But you sort of just learn to hold your own and be confident in carrying the ball and that you can compete against the men and with the men and throw a ball at the men and catch a ball from the men. And, um, yeah, I guess maybe just confidence. Okay, so it's a pretty, pretty good answer there, sort of both in terms of the gameplay and then also the mental side of things. And uh, I've got one final question here. I think it's quite a, a good note to finish on. Uh, so... Apart from winning the World Cup, which I'm probably sure is number one, what is your best non-World Cup Quidditch moment? Oh. It'd probably be one of two. Um, one quaffle where I had to play Seeker, I managed to catch Damo, um, Damian Osborne from the 2016 team, who he's probably just as good a snitch as he is a seeker and that was phenomenal snitch yeah he's incredible so to catch him was I was very surprised by it I think the picture you used oh no sorry that's from a different tournament but anyway um (laughs) I think catching him was quite great and then that game I mentioned earlier the one that went for two hours in our summer um the only reason it ended is because I caught the snitch (laughs) so I think maybe that moment because I could have cried. I wanted that game to be over so badly. And then it was over because I caught it. So that was that was pretty great. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, two uh, real moments of triumph there. Um, <laughs> so we got for this episode. Uh, Matea, this has been, I think the best way to describe it is powerful. Uh, you've done so much with your time of being Quidditch and outside it and dealt with some real tough moments. Um, it's been great to hear all those things from your perspective. Um, So thank you very much for your time. No, thank you so much, Fraser. It's been great. (laughs) Yeah, glad to hear it. Um, We hope you, the listeners, have enjoyed listening to this episode as well. This is actually the end of the first series of the podcast. Um, We're going to have a short break, probably for at least a week, and then we'll be back at it for series two. So if you want to stay up to date with future episodes, when we start back up again, Uh, please give the Total Quidditch Facebook page a like, because that's where we'll be announcing upcoming guests and, of course, giving you a chance for you to send in more of your mailbag questions. So, until next time, keep yourselves safe and live the game. Goodbye.